Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Birth and death are profoundly personal experiences bound up in our beliefs, religious faiths, and cultural values. Yet in the last century, various forces have medicalized birth and death, pushing us into hospitals and promoting a one-size-fits-all approach. The government has been one of the central forces in this transition. By designing hospitals, licensing midwives, eliminating birthing centers and hospices, and controlling the money that flows through our healthcare system, the government has pushed us into hospitals and eliminated other options. On today's episode, we discuss how this happened and what we can do about it. Joining us today is Lauren K. Hall, an associate professor of political science at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Her new book is The Medicalization of Birth and Death. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Lauren. Thanks so much for having me. It's an interesting title, so medical, medicalization of birth and death. It seems like they are inherently medical things. So how have they become medicalized? Yeah, I would actually push back on the idea that they're inherently medical. Um, birth in particular, uh, I think, is not, in fact, a medical problem at all. It's not an illness. It's not a disease. Uh, many births have medical components, but that's quite different from the sort of contention that I think we see now, which is that birth is inherently a medical phenomenon. Um, and the same thing is sort of true of death, although it's a little bit more complicated because, of course, usually people die of specific diseases or illnesses. Um, and so what I'm looking at in the book is the shift that happens over the last really 100, 150 years from birth and death primarily happening at home um, with informal caretakers to largely taking place in centralized hospitals. And so my argument is not to sort of throw things back to the home and uh, unpaid labor and things like that, but instead to try to find some middle ground where we recognize when medical um, attention is needed and when medical intervention is, is called for and when we're actually um, harming people by, uh, um, by using medical tools on them during these really vulnerable times. So a lot of people listening to that, they may say, OK, like, yes, Birth in particular is not is not a medical thing in the way that cancer is, or it's not it's not a problem to be solved. Um, but but at the same time, like over this hundred and fifty year period that you mentioned, things both birth wise and death wise seem to have gotten better. Like we our life expectancy has gone up, so we're dying at later times too. We and birth is far less dangerous than it used to be. And it would seem that a lot of that is because we're doing it in places like hospitals. So even if we go in and aren't treating it like a medical condition that has to be solved, isn't the fact that we're doing these things in hospitals where we're surrounded by high quality equipment, high quality care, you know, people who can jump in if something goes wrong, isn't that making these things necessarily better? The medical research uh, suggests not. So if you look at the actual medical research on, um, on both birth and death, we seem to have reached a tipping point where we provide far too much care. Uh, it's absolutely true that um, in the course of the 20th century, we developed medical innovations that allowed for women to survive hemorrhages, for example, that would have killed them even 10 years earlier. Uh, we managed to make C-sections much safer, much more effective, much easier on both mothers and infants. And as a result of C-sections, of course, we've saved countless um, lives of both mothers and babies. So all of those things are are good. Um, similarly, on the death side, uh, chemotherapy is a fantastic innovation that saves thousands and thousands of people. Uh, but all of the available medical evidence that we have is that we use tools like chemotherapy and like C-sections far, far too often. So in the US, the C-section rate is about 30 two, 33%. Uh, most neutral observers um, would say that the that the ideal rate would be somewhere around 20%. Some people, the World Health Organization gets it as low as 15%. That number is a little bit controversial. Um, but so we're giving, you know, maybe, you know, maybe a third of the women who are getting uh, C-sections right now don't need them. Um, and C-sections are an incredibly invasive. I mean, they're, they're, major abdominal surgery. And then you send women home and expect them to take care of newborns uh, after having major surgery. And so it's, it's, uh, and then there's, there's compounding risks in later pregnancies. So the risk of various kinds of placental problems increases if you have um, an earlier C-section. So there's all these problems that sort of compound that people don't often take into account. And the same thing is true of chemotherapy. So if you look at chemotherapy rates, um, 
chemotherapy is very commonly used um, in patients for whom there is no hope. And a lot of the research in palliative care, for example, suggests that if we send people home into palliative care, hospice care, people can actually live longer without chemotherapy than they do with chemotherapy because chemotherapy is actually a poison. And so if it's not killing the cancer, then it's actually killing you. And so and, and chemotherapy and C-sections are just one example of this phenomenon where we it, it's not that the medical tools themselves are inherently bad by any stretch of the imagination. Um, if I if I get diagnosed with cancer, I absolutely want chemo to be available to me. Uh, but what we've done is we've medicalized these conditions to the point that we now provide too much medical care that actually is harmful. How much of this is about the difference between generalized statistics and, I guess, individualized risk in the sense that we can say like C-sections, that broadly speaking, we're doing too many C-sections, but for any individual mother who goes into the hospital, it seems perfectly rational for her to say like if there's any risk that the birth would go wrong without the C-section, we might want to just take the C-section or or with the chemotherapy. As you said, like there's evidence that some people will live longer without the chemotherapy, but we don't necessarily know who those people are at, at an individual level. And so is it is it people kind of choosing rationally for themselves or doctors choosing, you know, risk averse strategies on an individual level, but then the result is at the aggregate, we end up with far too much use of these things? I think there are some of those cases on the margin. So there are absolutely people who you just don't know um, whether the C-section is the right move, but it's the risk averse move. And so you're going to make that move. And and same thing is absolutely true for chemotherapy. Um, if you're a young person with stage four cancer, uh, you are going to be risk averse. Um, you're you're going to you're going to take the gamble against death. And so you're going to take that chemo. Um, but but the research suggests that that's actually not what's going on. And um, it's, it's going on in marginal cases, but that's not what's going on in the sort of majority of, of the medicalization. What actually seems to be happening, and, and um, birth is a really good example of this, is that physicians are actually um, confusing or at least choosing sort of their risk factors over the actual risk factors of the patient in front of them. Uh, so to take, for example, vaginal birth after cesarean, um, the, the actual risk to any individual woman who wants a vaginal birth after cesarean, um, which is a totally medically, I mean, all of the research supports that in the majority of cases, VBAC is a safer option than a repeat cesarean. Um, but there's one person for whom that is maybe not true, and that's for the physician. So the liability risk of VBAC is worse for the physician than the liability risk of a repeat cesarean. And so when you look at VBAC rates across the United States, uh, what you find is that women are themselves low-risk VBAC candidates. But because doctors are assessing their liability risk of something going wrong in the case of a VBAC, uh, they are encouraging, or in some cases, honestly, um, uh, pushing, sometimes even bullying, coercing women into repeat C-sections uh, because it lowers their liability risk, not because it lowers the woman's medical risk. How, how does the, the disconnect there, though, work? Because... It, so insurance and liability, like they put a lot of effort into trying to figure out what the actual risks are because that's how insurance companies make their money is to be as accurate as possible there. Um, and so how how does that disconnect work in that you have you have a woman who the risk is low, but the the insurance the doctor's carrying is saying that the risk is high? Yeah, there's two things at work. One is a series of uh, of poor research that, um, or, or a sort of cluster of poor research that came out in the 1990s uh, that looked at uterine rupture rates in VBAC. And uh, when those came out, they, I mean, what it looked like was that you have these catastrophic um, uterine rupture rates. And so VBAC is very dangerous. You don't want the uterus contracting after it's been cut open. And so we should just totally cut VBAC out. Um, up until that point, we had actually had relatively high rates of um, vaginal birth after cesarean in this country. Um, so after that came out, uh, doctors and, and insurance companies dramatically cut back on their um, on their VBAC um, uh, or their willingness to attend VBACs. 
it became really clear later that that research was actually flawed in a variety of ways. Um, one of the reasons that, and this goes to the medicalization piece, one of the contributors to uterine rupture was actually because we were inducing contractions with Cytotec, which is a very strong medication that causes extremely strong contractions that can, in fact, rupture a uterus. So it wasn't the actual sort of natural contractions that a body goes through when it releases oxytocin. It was the fact that we were adding a medication to an already somewhat fragile environment that was then causing the ruptures. So once people took Cytotec out of the, um, out of the protocol, um, uterine rupture rates went down dramatically. The other thing that, that comes out of that is that people were misinterpreting what the data actually said about uterine rupture. So uterine rupture sounds horrific and catastrophic. Uh, I certainly would never like to have a uterine rupture. Um, but the reality is that the vast majority of uterine ruptures that occur during VBACs are minor tears that are actually very easy to, um, you can even rep um, uh, repair them laparoscopically. So they're not the kind, when we think uterine rupture, we think catastrophic, like threatening hemorrhage. That's not actually what's happening in the vast majority of these cases. So if you look at even the cases that have uterine rupture, the vast majority of them are minor. And the uh, really serious uterine ruptures are a very, very tiny percentage of the total. So we're sort of, it, it's like we're a misinterpreting the risk that exists and then amplifying that risk into something that is actually not the case. Uh, and then what happened was a series of professional organization recommendations by um, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, uh, ACOG, that came out and said, well, if, if you're going to look at a VBAC, if you're going to attend a VBAC birth, um, you have to sit there the entire time. The doctor has to be in attendance the whole time. Um, you can't leave the, the room or you can't leave the hospital. You have to have all of these other things in place. You have to do continuous fetal monitoring. And once you put those into place, I mean, the average C-section takes less than half an hour. A, a, a vaginal birth can take eight, nine, 10 hours. So it just became completely economically irrational for doctors to support VBAC. There's just no reason to do it if it takes you eight hours to do what you could be paid for 30 minutes of labor to do. So that's sort of part of the, the um, story there. And that gets to the question here of, of how we got to this with both the case of birth and death. And there's a mul multiple factors that we've already kind of touched on, some of them liability, some of them funding. You also I, – I mean you're not a huge fan of hospitals. I mean you think they should exist, but you, it seems like you think that they, they kind of – they had a sort of interesting effect on American medicine. Absolutely. Um, and I'll just preface this by saying, and, and, and before the sort of uh, the <laughs> criticism uh, comes in, <laughs> criticism start coming in. Uh, I gave birth to all three of my kids in a hospital. Uh, I got um, pretty good care. I was, you know, we were happy to do it. Um, part of the reason that I gave birth in a hospital was that there were no available birth centers in my state, which we can talk. We about can talk later. about why that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I have nothing. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I, I like hospitals a lot for the purposes um, for which they're designed, which I think hospitals are, are best reserved for treating um, acute or, uh, or sort of serious illnesses that require intensive medical care. The vast majority of births, I do not think, do that. And what ends up happening in, in hospitals, which indeed happened with all three of my labors, was that hospitals have to standardize care just by the nature of the beast, right? This is true of any large bureaucratic organism. It's true of any kind of institution that deals with lots of different people with lots of different sort of modes of uh, um, action and jobs that they have to get done. Um, and so be, by by having to standardize care, um, it means that individuals who have unique needs are, are simply by definition going to be sort of problem patients. And this is certainly true of women who are trying to give birth vaginally. Um, and it's also true of many, many people who are dying. So people who are dying are on very unique kinds of tracks. And that's partly because dying itself, I mean, if you are a terminal patient, um, it there's no curing death itself. You can you can sort of hold it off with various kinds of ways, but the process of dying, especially in the elderly and in the terminally ill, is an incredibly unique process. People have all sorts of preferences about how they die, about where they die, about the kinds of positions that they want to die in, in terms of connection to social groups and family and things like that, that just cannot be managed in a hospital environment. And so that's 
probably my biggest critique of hospitals is not that they're unnecessary or that they provide crappy care, although I think a lot of our incentives do point toward crappy care, um, but instead that they simply cannot individualize care in the way that birthing and dying people require. And of course, since this is free thoughts, uh, we have to blame the government at some point. Um, I like the one of the this fact which uh, which I learned when I when I well I helped review the manuscript of this a couple of years ago. This this fact has stuck with me that um, the Hilburton Act of 1946 gave us the baby room. Uh, that classic image of of going in a uh, in a movie where you go and look through the glass and all the babies who are lined up um, is a product of government intervention for for these reasons about uh, making sort of a factory based model of of a hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, um, there's this wonderful architect named Rosalind Lindheim. She's unfortunately passed away now, um, and she she didn't leave a ton of um, of research behind her, but. Uh, but she actually was one of the crucial architects in developing the concept of children's hospitals because, you know, she looked at sort of how we treat sick children in hospitals and she was horrified, right? I mean, this is like a situation where their, their child is being taken away. Um, but so she, um, so anyway, the, the sort of the children's hospital idea came from this idea of trying to de-standardize care for certain kinds of patients. So allowing children to have playrooms and allowing them to have sort of more open concept, allowing family more access and beds in rooms so that parents could sleep with their children. Um, and But she makes the similar comment um, about the Hill-Burton Act and its role in maternity care. So as a hospital architect, she looks at this and she says, this is insane. These, these uh, essentially the Hill-Burton Act handed out blueprints for community hospitals and said, we're going to give you funding and you've got to build this hospital. And so what that did is it standardized not just the way that we treat uh, mothers in maternity care, but it also standardized maternity care itself. All of a sudden, it's very difficult for mothers to room in with their babies. It's very difficult for women to avoid the assembly line uh, approach to maternity care, which says you labor in this room and then you get moved to this room for recovery and then you get moved over here. And even in my births in 2000, um, in 2012 was the first time I gave birth, uh, I was moved around during labor, like a sort of, um, like almost like on a conveyor belt, right? You start triage and they do a bunch of stuff to you in triage and then they move you to this room where you can sort of labor. And then as soon as you have the baby, you're moved to this other room. I mean, it was really, really bizarre. And that is largely a function of the way that we designed um, these hospitals in the Hill-Burton Act and the centralized nursery, taking infants away from their mothers. That was all part of this idea of making the hospital as efficient for staff as possible. I knew we could blame the government for so many things, but I did not we could know we could blame them for the baby room. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so was that the that the motivation then behind the Hilburton Act was just an attempt we, we're going to pass a law that will make hospitals be constructed in a more efficient way? Or was there more to it than that? Because it just seems odd that I mean I it's never odd. The government does all sorts of things that seem odd, but it does them anyway. <laughs> uh, but but it just seems odd to say like lawmakers get together and say we are going to plan the uniform architecture of hospitals. Yeah, no, no. The the motives I think were good um, uh, in the sense that what they were really trying to do is bring hospital care to rural communities um, and 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 some urban communities that didn't have community hospitals. So the goal was let's dump a bunch of funding into building hospitals. Uh, it was also Paul Starr makes this point in his um, sort of sociological overview of of hospitals and and sort of American healthcare overall. It was also meant to be a jobs program. So the idea was, let's get people to work, right, and building stuff that we need, i.e. hospitals. And as he points out, there was this expansionary bias to the program, which was, we're just going to keep needing all these hospitals. And, be and once you have something as expensive as a hospital built, you've You've got to use it. You've got to figure out how to get patients in the door. And so that actually started. So in addition to standardizing care, it also ended up really centralizing care because you had to start pulling patients into these hospitals to get them used and to get them um, to make sure that they remained profitable. Um, so but the original the original intention really was to to bring health care to populations that did not really have um, as much access and to get people to work building this infrastructure. 
um, over that period of time. Definitely, my mom grew up in a small town in, in northwest Oklahoma that had a, one of these hospitals put in there, which helped helped the town a lot. And mm-hmm. I remember going to that hospital, and it does have a very interesting look to it. Um, now, in addition to hospitals, we have funding. Which is a major source of a lot of problems in American healthcare, the third party payer problem, whether it's insurance or Medicare or Medicaid, uh, the, the patient is not the customer. But this also has helped contribute to this medicalization of birth and death, correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, so we have some interesting biases within the, within the payment framework. Um, for both birth and death, uh, Practitioners, providers are reimbursed at much higher rates for medical interventions than they are for the communication with the patient about what their preferences actually are. So when I had an obstetrician for my first pregnancy, um, our my appointments with my OB lasted less than five minutes. I had less than five minutes of FaceTime with her throughout my pregnancy to talk to her about what kind of birth I wanted. And and it was no surprise that when I actually asked her at about 16 weeks, like, you know, should we talk about a birth plan or something? She sort of just dismissed, you know, she said, well, we're superstitious about birth plans. They, you know, don't go, they don't go the way that we want them to go usually. And so I looked at that um, as a political scientist and I said, well, this is someone that just doesn't care about my preferences, right? Like if if you just don't care, then that's fine, but I want to know that. So I ended up switching um, to a family practice doctor who who delivered babies at the hospital. And that was a much more positive experience. But but the economic incentives were clear. My OB did not get reimbursed um, very well at all for prenatal visits. She certainly did not get reimbursed for extra answering extra questions that I had. She didn't get reimbursed if those appointments went over time. But she got she did get reimbursed for C-sections, for um, inducing labor with pitocin or other kinds of mechanical means. Um, so she got she got reimbursed for doing medical stuff to pregnant women. Um, And that's great if you have a medical condition, you know, in conjunction with your pregnancy. It's not great if your goal is to have a non-medicalized labor and delivery. Now, that's true for both government paying and private insurance. It's all kind of the same in terms of what Medicare and Medicaid will pay for. And also, is it the case, too, when it comes to death, is it they'll be paying for medical interventions, but isn't it also they don't want to pay? So if you wanted palliative care and say, okay, I'm, I'm done, you know, I'm done with treatments, I'd like to die uh, in, a, in a good way, um, why wouldn't they want to pay for that if it's cheaper? Yeah. So the question I think is, um, so, so I, when I talk to palliative care physicians about this, they, they're always very careful because they obviously have to work with other physicians. Um, I think there's a couple things going on. One is that if you're not trained in palliative care, if you're an oncologist, for example, um, you have a lot of professional and personal pride in keeping people alive. Uh, and in most hospitals, palliative care is an opt-in consult, meaning that the patient has to know that palliative care exists and has to ask for it. Um, So even if the insurance companies would rather the patient use palliative care as part of their treatment, um, it's, it's not always an option given the other institutional barriers to accessing that service. Uh, The other thing is that it's not always clear what economic direction palliative care is going to move towards. So the the actual sort of um the the actual evidence on palliative care and hospice in particular is that it's probably cheaper for most kinds of illnesses, but not cheaper for some. So um there are certain kinds of illnesses, like if people live a very long time, then hospice and palliative care do become more uh more costly. Uh so the insurance industry I think is is still in a very uncomfortable situation where it doesn't want to make enemies of of oncologists and other kinds of traditional providers at the end of life. Um, there are a lot of insurance companies, though, that are exploring um, using palliative care, for example, as a standard consult anytime anyone is diagnosed with a life-threatening illness, uh, simply because it can, it can, re- it, it, it generally always improves outcomes in terms of quality of life. Um, it may reduce costs, but that's a little bit less clear at the end of life. It's it's very clear at birth or during birth. So given that people – I mean we've just been discussing people respond to incentives 
Um, and so it sounds like the current the current incentive structure for hospitals and doctors and payers pushes them to avoid palliative care and you know keep doing medical interventions to keep people alive, even if it's not the best thing for them. Um, so ideally, we'd like to push back on that and have a more balanced thing. But how do we do that in a way that doesn't risk pushing things in the other direction? Because you can imagine a, a situation where if if the incentive – so we discourage doctors from trying to save people at all costs. We figure out some way to push back on that that drive that yeah. the physician has to keep his patient. But we don't want them to be, you know, too blasé about keeping people alive. Um, and and right. we don't want we don't want a funding thing that encourages instead spending on palliative care as opposed to, you know, life extension care because we don't want insurance companies deciding more than they should. Eh, you know, we think we should just give up on you. And so it seems like there's there's a high risk of given the complexities of the the incentives there's a high risk of the pendulum swinging too far the other way. Yes, yeah. And um and that's actually one of the concerns that a lot of patients at the end of life one of the issues I think you do have is is patient demand and family demand uh, because patients don't want to give up hope. And the way that the medical, um, the way that the Medicare hospice benefit is structured is actually a, a terrible incentive uh, because what it does is it requires you to give up any kind of curative treatment in order to qualify for hospice. So if you're a, if you're a patient that has any hope that you might survive this, you have no incentive at all to go on hospice because of course you're going to fight till the end, right? So, so Medicare, the Medicare hospice benefit actually sort of built into the system um, this really problematic incentive that that keeps people in active treatment even when a combination of active treatment and something like palliative care would be much more beneficial for them. Um, but this comes up in in, um, in patient conversations all the time. And I was interviewing um, a palliative care nurse practitioner, for example, who was um, who was talking to a black family member um, of a patient of hers and, and he just sort of pulled her aside and said, you know, can you promise me that your recommendation isn't to save money? And she was heartbroken, right? So she's a palliative care practitioner. She loves, I mean, part of the reason that she went into this incredibly emotionally draining field is to try to help people figure out how to die in a sort of humane and uh, in, a, in a humane way that's consistent with their preferences. And this guy had this very, you know, sensible question, right? Like, how do I know you're not just trying to profit the insurance company? Um, so that, that I think, is a real fear um, of a lot of patients. But it's also a, a serious concern, I think, as you point out, on the incentive side. The best uh, approaches that I've seen to dealing with this are situations where you have a, um, collaborati a collaboration between Palliative care, uh, you see this sometimes in oncology clinics where you have palliative care physicians who work with oncologists. Um, so it's collaborative. And they also, in some of these situations, they, they do some cost sharing. And so they actually pool some of the funding that they get for these various kinds of um, uh, treatments and things into a sort of general fund. And so that takes some of the, um, instead of pitting palliative care physicians against oncologists, right, or pitting uh, the insurance company against oncologists and in favor of palliative care or something, you actually have the the different physicians working really closely together. And I think that takes away at least some of the potential for abuse because you have different physicians operating as as kind of walk, watchdogs on each other. Um, you know, the oncologist isn't going to let some palliative care guy come in and say, you know, just give up chemo. It's going to save you if, if he actually thinks there's the potential for uh, for someone to be saved. And um, the one example of this that I've seen, it's not specific to palliative care, but Grand Junction, Colorado did something sort of similar um, when they were trying to reduce hospital admissions. And what they found is that um, there's actually a sort of Eleanor Ostrom uh, kind of lesson here about uh, common pool resources. But what they found is that if you if you allow physicians to sort of informally monitor each other and you set up the uh, the systems for people to sort of keep an eye on each other and then you pool these resources in what people agree is a relatively fair way, uh, you can actually get some pretty considerable cost savings as well as much higher quality care. So the way that we've siloed out medical care into 
you know, you get treated by an oncologist until there's no hope. And then we punt you to the palliative care people to clean up the mess. Right. Um, and that's sort of what a lot of palliative care physicians feel like happens is that they get the cases uh, at the very, very end of life when quality of life is not as much of a question. Whereas if they could be more involved a year before, they would be able to help people manage the symptoms uh, that, that come along with chemotherapy. They would be able to help them with comfort care and making sure that their families are clued in and having these really complicated conversations about end of life wishes. But when they're called in the week before the patient dies, that's not, that's not doing anyone any good. Years ago, there was uh, midwives were very common. Uh, I don't know what percentage of births, but well, most births were in the home, I think in, in 1900 and with probably midwives. Um, and now I think midwives are a little bit on the comeback, but I, but I remember maybe 20 years ago, it was, I remember a, f a friend of the family decided to have a midwife birth and there was a lot of like, are you crazy kind of things. Now, I think like Brooklyn hipsters are probably pretty into midwives, uh, and the, maybe that's one reason why it's coming back. But, but what happened to midwives? And are midwives effective too? I mean, are, are they a good substitute? Yeah. Um, so, I'll answer the the second question first, which is, are midwives effective? Um, and the evidence suggests yes. I mean, there's a lot of European countries that uh, that have what I think is the most effective system for giving birth, which is essentially a, a very commonsensical triage situation, right? If you're a low-risk woman with a low-risk pregnancy, you start out with a midwife. If any risk factors emerge over the course of that pregnancy, uh, you get a physician involved. Um, if it gets really risky, then you get a maternal fetal specialist who is someone who specializes in very risky pregnancies. So it's not like we don't know how to do this. <laughs> Lots of other countries do this. And there's actually hospitals in the United States that do this with midwives too. Um, the evidence on um, nurse midwives is very, very positive. So nurse midwives are midwives who have a nursing degree, and then they go on for a master's in midwifery. So they, they are advanced practice nurses they have the medical chops to handle a lot of different emergencies as they come up during labor and delivery, um, but they won't, given their scope of practice, they won't handle very risky um, deliveries. So usually they um, will hand off um, uncontrolled gestational diabetes, or if you have preeclampsia, which is high blood pressure during pregnancy, uh, dangerously high blood pressure during pregnancy, um, uh, many midwives, uh, and, and some of this is regulated also. So in many states, midwives can't attend twin or multiple births, triplets. Uh, but for the average woman, um, nurse midwives have actually better outcomes than physicians, uh, depending on how you look at those outcomes. So midwives have much lower intervention rates, much lower C-section rates. Um, and overall, the patient happiness with their midwives seems to be very, very high, at least comparable, if not exceeding that of patients with obstetricians. Um, the picture is a little bit less clear for certified professional midwives or direct entry midwives. Um, and those are midwives who come into midwifery through an apprenticeship program. So they're not trained nurses usually. Um, and their regulatory situation is much more complicated for those kinds of nurses. Some states uh, license them, others don't. Um, some they're sort of explicitly illegal others there's just a sort of legal gray area um, so certified professional midwives um, there's a much wider variation in practice patterns um, and so what we find especially in home births and, and certified professional midwives are as far as I know not allowed to practice in in any hospital in the United States so uh, they exclusively attend births at birth centers or at home and um, and births with those midwives is a little riskier um, for a variety of reasons that we can talk about. Um, so you you do have higher a little bit higher infant mortality with um, with those midwives, but it's still a very low. I mean, infant mortality is still very rare in this country, even with certified professional midwives. Uh, but there is a, a slight increase in risk um, uh, with that type of midwife. So that's the, yeah, did you want to follow up? Sorry. Well, just what do they do? I mean, if you're doing a home birth, um, we we can, I mean, over the, the months leading up to the pregnancy, we can look for risk factors. But what do they do if something unexpected happens and they can't whisk you down the conveyor belt to the OR? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, one 
Yeah, so, so there's a couple things that they can do. First of all, um, a lot of uh, home birth midwives um, carry Pitocin, which is a synthetic form of oxytocin. It can be used to induce labor, but in this case, it's actually used to prevent uh, hemorrhage or control hemorrhage. So what oxytocin does in the uterus is it actually causes uterine contractions. And so if you, um, if you have a woman who is bleeding uncontrollably, you can carry this Pitocin with you. Um, it's a, it has very few side effects outside of the, I mean, it's a pretty safe medication. And so even non-nurses can administer it um, in a safe manner. Um, you give the woman a shot of Pitocin that helps her uterus clamp down on the hemorrhage long enough for you to transport her to a hospital. So in all of the cases, what we're looking at is the, the goal of a good midwife is to assess the risks of the patient in front of her and, um, and transfer her to a physician or a hospital if those risks exceed what is, is compatible with, with midwifery. But midwives also have a variety of tools to handle those unexpected emergencies as they come up. And this is why midwives will check your, um, in a home birth, they will check your uh, blood pressure frequently to make sure that you're not developing um, preeclampsia. They'll look at swelling to make sure that the swelling is normal. Uh, they'll look for any abnormal signs. Fever, for example, is an automatic transfer to a hospital, right? All of these different things. Um, and the vast majority of birth, um, of birth injuries and birth, uh, you know, the, the major causes of maternal and fetal mortality are things that leave signs. So it's actually pretty rare for a woman to just die for no reason in childbirth. There are usually warning signs ahead of time that a well-trained midwife can easily recognize and make that decision to transfer. So I think one of the weird um, sort of misconceptions that we have in this country about midwifery care is the sort of idea that like, if you get a home birth, you just, you, you've cut yourself off from medical care altogether, right? Like you're just stuck with that midwife, uh, even if you die. And that's just not the case. I mean, if you talk to home birth midwives, they consider it one of their most important duties to figure out when something is outside the scope of their um, of their professional competence and get women to hospitals. Uh, most midwives have physicians on call. So if there is something that's a little bit off, they can call that consulting physician and see if that's something that needs to be, uh, that they need to go in for, or if it's something to just keep an eye on. So in an ideal system, you would have that collaboration between physicians and, um, and midwives in the same way that you would ideally have collaboration between palliative care physicians and oncologists. But unfortunately, the regulations work in such a way as to act actively prevent that collaboration. And so the result is that women are less safe in the US system than they are in systems like Canada or the UK, where midwives are actually incorporated into the healthcare system. And you can have that open collaboration between midwives and physicians. I, I assume that midwives carry liability insurance, just as physicians do, um, do they suffer the same sorts of incentives problems with theirs that pushes them into risk aversion or, or things that they shouldn't necessarily be doing? A lot of midwives do not carry uh, malpractice insurance, um, particularly certified professional midwives. Um, mo the vast majority of nurse midwives operate in hospitals, and they are either covered under the hospital's malpractice insurance or they're required to carry their own. So nurse midwives um, are a little bit different because they they have to work within the institutional constraints of the hospital. Certified professional midwives, though, it's a lot more interesting. Um, they get to choose. Um, some states do require insurance coverage, I believe, but a lot of them don't. And so it's it's sort of up to the midwives to decide whether they want um, uh, whether they want to handle that insurance or not. And a lot of them simply say that they don't. Um, now, in general, home birth midwives, even those who have malpractice insurance, say that they're, the incentives don't work quite the same way with them because they have closer relationships with their patients. And so the theory goes that midwifery patients, and I haven't been able to find any hard data on this, but I suspect that it's true anecdotally, is that uh, a lot of midwifery patients or midwifery patients generally are less likely to sue because midwife, because they have a more trusting relationship with their midwife. Um, so if you look at a lot of the reasons that people sue for malpractice after births in hospitals, it's actually because they don't know what happened. Mm -hmm. So people are suing for information first and foremost. And in order to get the hospital records released, in order to get staff interviewed, you have to have an active lawsuit. So that's another sort of problem. 
um, where there's an incentive to sue in hospitals and not as much of an incentive to sue in the in the home birth context. So what happened to to midwives in, in terms of the the decline, at least, of the use of them? We talked about some of them. But there's also licensing issues involved, and then. I mean, and that could possibly tie into something you briefly mentioned with the certificate of need laws when it comes to something like a birthing center where midwives might work but might not exist because the government doesn't let it exist. Yeah. So the the um the destruction of midwifery was a was a very explicit and uh, pretty well planned out campaign by physicians. So there's actually some evidence. Um, uh, if you look at the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1912, I think is the is one article um, where they talk about th- the fact that they can't make any advances in obstetrics because uh, midwives are hogging all the material mm-hmm. that they need. And of course, material in this case is, is women's bodies. Um, and so uh, essentially what what happened was that um, physicians used state medical associations to lobby for increasingly restrictive regulations on the practice of midwifery. So what you had were midwives who were largely apprenticeship based. They had no formal uh, medical training. And so they were, so essentially what physicians did is they started prosecuting them for practicing medicine without a license. And, um, and they really ramped up these prosecutions in the early part of the 20th century. And the goal was to get uh, women into hospitals where you could start doing this sort of scientific study of birth and, and start actually controlling the process in order to see sort of how um, uh, uh, how birthing would, would be better. Uh, the irony, of course, is that at this time, many physicians had higher maternal mortality rates than midwives because they were constantly sticking dirty hands and dirty tools and all sorts of awful things into women's body. They were intervening all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a decent understanding of germ theory, mm-hmm. uh, you are going to kill a lot of women. And so the the largest cause of maternal death at this point is, um, at, at the point that we're talking about in the early 1900s, is um, infection. And many, many of those infection, infections were caused by physician hygiene issues. So um, there's one case of, um, of a midwife named Hannah Porn in Massachusetts who was prosecuted multiple times for practicing uh, medicine without a license. And the physicians who testified are at trial had worse maternal and infant mortality statistics than she did. Mm-hmm. She was objectively a better provider than the physicians who were trying to get her out of um, out of practice, and they succeeded. So she was she was eventually booted from um, from practice. Um, what they noticed was an uptick. I like this little detail. What they noticed is a, an uptick in um, birth certificates that were not signed after her final conviction. And so so what they conclude from that is that she continued to practice uh, because women trusted her, but she simply didn't didn't leave evidence behind. So what about certificate of need laws? Yeah. So those, um, that's actually the story in my state, New York, uh, for why, for example, we have, we only have two birth centers in the entire state of New York. Um, and, uh, certificate of need laws. So, so the kinds of regulations that we were talking about with, um, with midwives are a way to sort of control midwives directly through this licensing process. And I'll just add very quickly that, um, that this destroyed midwifery sort of across the board, but it had particularly awful effects on African-American women in the South. The granny midwife um, was not just someone who delivered babies, but she also provided this really comprehensive form of um, of postnatal care to women who had uh, who were having babies. And um and, and there's a lot of evidence that the granny midwives were very successful in lowering infant and maternal mortality. And the initial push was just to get them to sort of boost their training a little bit, to teach them about hygiene, to get them to become sort of community health leaders in their capacity. But then very quickly what happened after a couple, you know, after basically a decade um, is that they started being targeted by physicians too. And so eventually granny midwives were made illegal um, in all Southern states, which meant 
meant that you lost all of these people who were able to give culturally competent care, who were able to work with people in really rural areas, uh, people who had been really seriously harmed by the medical system, who didn't trust doctors. Uh, all of a sudden, they have no option whatsoever. Um, so the the targeting of midwives was was pretty comprehensive, but I think I think there's a lot of evidence that it harmed uh, black women more than white women because black women just had fewer options. And then if you take into account the the racism that black women experienced when they went to hospitals. Um, you have just astronomical rates, for example, in Mississippi of forced hysterectomies. Um, you know, so you go to the hospital in labor, a doctor says, decides that you have too many children and gives you uh, a hysterectomy without your knowledge um, or, or sterilizes you in some other way. And so uh, that procedure was actually common enough that, that um, it was called a Mississippi appendectomy. So there were very strong reasons why women, why black women in particular, did not want to go to hospitals to give birth. Um, and yet the destruction of granny midwives meant that they were forced into these um, institutions that, um, that treated them in this pretty horrific way. So given all of the the problems that we've discussed today, um, how do we go about changing things? How do we go about changing the the legal incentives, the institutional incentives, um, particularly in the face of what I imagine is be, is strong pushback from certain groups that have an interest in this, whether that's the AMA or the insurance lobby or whomever else? Like, what can we do? Yeah. Um... I, I try to be hopeful. <laughs> I mean, the, the concern that I have that and that I that I the book sort of ends on is that, I mean, we have a lot of of compounding streams of different government policies that all point in the same direction, and so it's just going to be really hard to untangle it at any one government level. Um, I, I think there's a couple things that, um, you know, at the state level, Trevor mentions certificate of need laws. Um, I think at the at the state level, we should absolutely stop allowing hospitals to veto the entry of competing organizations. I mean, it's it's absurd to me that uh, New York State, for example, has two birth centers because hospitals, every time that they try, every time birth centers try to enter the market, um, hospitals just come along and they go, nope, we actually have maternity care totally locked in this area. It's totally fine. We don't need any new maternity providers. And for some reason, regulators go, oh, okay, that sounds fine. Um, Kentucky has zero birth centers because every single birth center has lost their certificate of need battle. Um, that's just, I mean, that's just crazy, especially because the demand is very much there. So I think pushing back against certificate of need laws, um, I do think that more people and more women need to realize that a lot of regulatory issues are in fact women's issues. Um, you know, when I talk to people about the kinds of births that they had, a lot of women's responses is, were just sort of, yeah, I mean, the world we live in doesn't make any sense. But what they didn't realize is that it, it doesn't make sense because specific people have invested interests in not making it make sense, right? It makes sense for them, but it doesn't make sense for you. And so I, I do think that telling and sort of if, if women became more aware of how their choices are artificially limited by these regulatory structures that very often serve the interests of physicians and hospitals, uh, I think you'd get more outrage. Um so I guess there's that. I do. I think the biggest hope that I have is the reimbursement piece, uh, because so much of this, because states and the federal government are just so strained by escalating healthcare costs. I think we're going to see room made in the near future for more experimentation in healthcare delivery. And you're already seeing some focus on community-based options um, as alternatives to these huge hospitals. Uh, but there's a lot of institutional inertia. Once you create a giant medical center, it's very hard to make the case to local or regional officials that you need to cut back the use of that resource. It's just you're talking about people's jobs. You're talking about um, a major economic powerhouse in the region. And where I live in Rochester, uh, the University of Rochester Medical Center is one of the largest employers in the entire region. So it's really hard to decentralize once you've shoved all those resources into a huge sort of infrastructure behemoth that you then have to keep funding and, and throwing resources at. We could also probably do something about the scope of practice, I think it's important too, which has been pointed out about nurse practitioners can do 
a lot more. Now, the AMA is probably not a big fan of it, but I think there's a kind of emerging push along those lines. Yeah, and there's actually some hopeful stuff from um, uh, both the government, but also some some of the major health nonprofits where um, – you know, the, the physicians kept pushing back against nurse practitioners practicing independently. And finally, I mean, there were, there were actually some major, um, I don't want to misname anyone, so I, I don't, I don't remember which organization it was. Uh, but there were a couple organizations that sort of gave the AMA a kind of pat on the head and said, we understand your concerns, but, but given the escalating cost of healthcare, you're just, you're going to lose on this one. So I think, you're starting to see the sort of physician monopoly on a lot of these kinds of care um, areas of care sort of dissolving because we have such a huge shortage of physicians generally in, in a lot of areas. I mean, obstetrics is losing providers like crazy in large part because of the liability crisis. Um, but you're also just going to start seeing, I think, local and regional folks saying, well, actually, there are these these cheaper um, these cheaper forms of care. You talk about in the book the, the sort of principles that should guide reform and how we should be thinking about this, especially with birth and death. Um, and it's not, it's not just the Hippocratic Oath. If we reconceptualize what these are and make sure that we treat people with respect and, and honor their dignity as human beings, then we could probably get somewhere uh, if we change our thinking about these two events that either a lot of people go through and everyone will go through. Yeah. So one of the um, frameworks, and I'm not a, a bioethicist, but but I do think that the sort of the the do no harm, the focus on do no harm has really done a lot of a lot of harm uh, in that there are other competing principles. Right. So there's patient autonomy, which is where the principle of informed consent becomes so important. There's questions of justice, who gets access to what kinds of care under what situations. Um, and then there's the question of is it's not just is the medical intervention that you're doing on this person doing harm, but is it providing them any benefit? And what we find is that a lot of the interventions that we do to the birthing and dying are not providing them benefits. They're extremely costly and uh, they're actually doing, um, they're doing active harm. And so, uh, and people aren't people aren't actually consenting to these because they don't fully understand the range of options available to them. So I guess part of what I wanted to do in the book is is really refocus the conversation around the individuals who are who are doing this. Right, birth and death are incredibly vulnerable periods in anyone's life. They are incredibly individual. They are extremely preference sensitive. And those preferences have enormous impacts on the medical outcomes. And so we we have to move away from a system that treats people as though they are sort of standardized objects on a conveyor belt. And we have to allow more, more sort of freedom for people to make decisions that might be uncomfortable, that might mess with the standard of care and the and the hospital protocols. And the only re, the only way that we can do that is by loosening government regulation at all levels. Because what we've done is we've created this sort of regulatory web that that pushes people into centralized hospitals to give to give birth and to die. And just all of the evidence that we have is that that's not the best place for the majority of people. It might be a good place for some people, uh, but we need to open up those those regulatory bonds to let people make decisions about how they want to take on those really vulnerable and really meaningful uh, times of their life. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, you can find our Free Thoughts discussion group on Facebook or on Reddit at r slash Free Thoughts Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Free Thoughts Pod. As always, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.